Sometimes one of the hardest things in life is to practice what you preach. To live what you say. To do what you believe. It's a struggle for us because life keeps pushing us and pulling us in directions that are the opposite of what we say and what we believe. If we didn't have any obstacles in life, it'd be a lot easier to do what we're supposed to do. To follow the pathway that we talk about, to to practice what we preach. But it's a struggle because life is hard. And there are all kinds of obstacles in life. And I think... To some degree, this is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. As a prophet, he is the voice of God to the people. He is telling them, this is what you believe. This is what it means to follow God. Obey him, love him, honor him, worship him. And he is continually calling the people to be God's people. And now when we come to this prophecy, which in many ways is not so much a prophecy as it is a conversation between God and the prophet. He says, God, I'm struggling to practice what I preach. The prophet Nahum, uh, what we talked about last week, is really about God's anger toward people. Habakkuk is more about people's anger toward God. As this prophecy begins, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Habakkuk is crying out to God and saying, Look, have you seen what's going on in Judah? Do you recognize what's happening here? There is violence everywhere. The courts are a mess. Bribery. Perjury. Injustice. The the most vulnerable are being taken advantage of. Everything about life in Judah is turned upside down from what you designed it. And you don't seem to do anything about it. And Lord, I want you to do something about it. I want you to take care of this. I want you to change this. I want you to stop this. Where are you? What are you doing? People are going to think you don't care. And to Habakkuk's cry, his complaint, God says, you know what, Habakkuk, you're exactly right. I do need to do something about people, what's going on in Judah. And what I'm going to do What I'm going to do is knock your socks off. You are not going to believe it. It is one of those things that you have to see it to believe it kinds of experiences. I was thinking about those kinds of experiences with my great-grandmother, who was born in 1888 and died in 1984. I was 24 years old when she died. I knew her very well. At one point, there were five generations of, of women in my family. I was thinking about my great-grandmother and how she was born in the infancy of gasoline automobiles and saw jet airplanes and watched 
A man walk on the moon. With all of that, try to explain, think of trying to explain to her computers and cell phones, texting, email. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. It took me a long time to figure out email. I was 37 years old before I was first introduced to email. I was an old person. You know, and now it's my life all the time. But I remember first hearing about it and I thought, there's no way that could happen. There's no way you could do that. There's no way you could sit down at a computer and send a message to somebody somewhere else. Where's the postage stamp? Where's the envelope? Where's the paper? And now it's just continually one more thing, right? One more thing that's hard to believe. One more thing that you just can't quite grasp. And God says to Habakkuk, you're not going to believe this. It's going to shock you. And what is it God says? He says, look, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to handle the people of Judah. I'm going to go get Babylon. I'm going to bring them to be my agents of punishment. And I can almost hear Habakkuk from the the centuries crying out, God, are you kidding me? Seriously? I mean, I know we're bad. We have bad things going on here. But have you looked at Babylon? Have you seen what they're like? Do you know the level of their cruelty and their ruthlessness and their violence and their idolatry? I mean, it makes us look like choir boys. Really? That's what you're going to do? You're right. I don't believe it. When you get to the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk says, I'm going to go stand up in the watchtower. I'm going to go stand up in my guard post. And I'm going to watch and see what you do, Lord. How are you going to handle this? Are you really going to do that? You know, there are different ways of... of, uh, of communicating to people some things that we might want them to do. Sometimes we get an idea in our minds or we see something happen or, or we've been a part of an experience and, and it's just been so wonderful for us that we want other people to experience it too. And so we might go to somebody who's in charge and say, look, I had this experience. I know how this has worked. I, I think it would be great for you to try this. And we just want to leave it with them. But then sometimes we have these experiences that are so powerful and so awesome and we want people to do it so much that we go to them and say, look, I had this experience, I was a part of this and you really need to do this. The first one's a suggestion. The second one feels a little more like a demand. And you've probably been on both sides of that. And I think as Habakkuk stands there on the watchtower, it's a little bit more like a demand than a suggestion. Saying, Lord, I'm going to watch. What are you going to do? I'm judging you. And the question that, that Habakkuk is wrestling with is in an upside down world. Can God be trusted? I think it's a question you and I wrestle with too. Because we live in an upside down world. God's response to Habakkuk in chapter 2 is to remind Habakkuk of who he is. And in very graphic, glowing terms, he says to him, Look, the day is coming when I will do exactly what you want me to do. The day is coming when I will deal with evil in this world. The day is coming when I will answer your questions. The day is coming when I will handle things. But... 
Not yet. And in the meantime, you need to trust me. It's not easy living between the now and the not yet. We want the not, we want the not yet to be now. We want God to take care of the problems. We want God to eliminate evil. We want God to, to clean everything up. Because quite frankly, it feels a little bit out of control when life is so messy and so complicated and so difficult. But I get the feeling that, that God isn't nearly as anxious about it as we are. You almost get the sense that God is saying, I think you can learn a lot more about me in the middle of chaos than in the middle of peace. I almost get the feeling he's saying, look, you do realize that you're never going to learn to trust me if there isn't a reason to trust me. But I want everything to be cleaned up. I want all the evil and the problems and the struggles and the difficulties to be taken away. Because then I think, okay, now I can live the way I need to live. It reminds me of the parable that we read. Where Jesus says a man went out and planted seeds in his field. And when the crops came up, an enemy had sown weeds. And servants come running to him, master, master, those weeds and the wheat. He says, oh, an enemy did that. And they say, you want us to pull up the weeds? He says, no, 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 don't pull up the weeds. If you pull up the weeds, you'll probably pull up the wheat too. And he says, "Uh, you know, you let them grow together. And when the day comes, I'll separate them. I'll take care of it. I want to pull up the weeds. I really want to pull up the weeds. And I don't just mean I want to try to make the world a better place. I don't just mean I want to be an agent of God's grace and healing in the world. I want to get rid of the weeds. I want a world in which there is no more evil. I want a world in which there is no more opposition. There is no more chaos. There is no more struggle. I want a world in which life is easy. But the reality is... When you read through the scripture, when people tend to live lives that are easy, they tend to forget God awfully quickly. And I don't think the calling of God's people is to try to dig up the weeds. I think our calling is to try to produce the best wheat that we possibly can. So that when people look at the field, the wheat is so awesome that the weeds just sort of disappear. And the wheat is what people can eat and be nurtured on. And the weeds are up to God. The wheat, that's where we put our energy. That's where we put our focus. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in wanting to to pull the weeds That we miss God's calling on us to produce good wheat. The truth of the matter is, the question that really this underlying, I think this prophecy is, is God who he says he is? Can God be trusted to do what he says he's going to do and to be who who he says he is? 
And Habakkuk just is wrestling with that. And he keeps coming back to this question. In this upside down world, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? And God says in that second chapter, look who I am. Trust me. You wonder if I've got things under control. I do. You wonder if if I know what I'm doing. I do. That song we just sang. I don't know about a lot of things, but I know this. I know who God is. And I trust him. I think the hinge point of this this whole prophecy is the end is the last verse of chapter 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. To say that God is in his temple, I mean, in the very simplest of terms, means that God is present. That God has brought his presence, all the holiness of his presence, to be with his people. And the most appropriate response to God's presence is silence, worship, prayer. We have a hard time with silence. I could feel it when I was standing here, not saying anything. You all were like, what's going on? What's happening? You forget what he was going to say? Is his mind wandering somewhere else? It's awkward, isn't it? We don't like silence. We embrace noise. We, even when we aren't watching television, we have, often have it on. We like background noise. In fact, we are so enamored with noise that we have to nuance it. We have to create words to describe the various kinds of noise. And we, we call them colors. I, I didn't know what was meant when I first talked about white noise. What is white noise? What does that even mean? Just noise. And noise isn't just what we hear. We have mental noise where our minds are just continually racing, thinking, thinking, racing, racing, worrying, fretting. We have the busyness of noise. We always have to be doing something. We never feel like, we feel uncomfortable if we aren't doing something, accomplishing something, gaining something, changing something. And while all that is good, sometimes we need silence. I've never yet heard anybody sponsor a noise retreat. Have you ever heard anybody sponsor a noise retreat? We don't need a noise retreat. We need silent retreats. We're good at noise. We've got noise down. Silence is our struggle. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel just a little bit out of control. And quite frankly, we like control. I think we are afraid of silence because we're a little bit concerned about what God's going to say to us in the silence. If we sit and listen, God might put his finger on that thing in our lives that we don't really want to let go of. If we listen, God might say to us, you know that relationship needs to be addressed, right? In the silence, God might say to us, um, there needs to be some new priorities about your life. But what we often miss is that it's in the silence that we hear God affirming us. 
It's in the silence that we begin to understand that we are loved, we are valuable to God. Not because we do something, but just because we are and because he is. And when you run from the moments in which God can communicate that to you, you miss it. Silence that I think he's describing here is a lot like what God is directing us to and related to Sabbath. The time to, to back away from all of the distractions of life, all the noise of life, and to back away and to focus on God, and in that moment to remember who God is. To affirm God is in control, God is good. God is gracious and merciful, and he knows what he's doing, and we can trust him. It's one of the reasons why we keep doing these prayer vigils every year. Because it is important for us as a church to step back a little bit. To take some time to pray, to worship. To set some time aside, to close the door, and to be removed from all of the demands and the busyness of life. And some people, people will often say to me, you know, man, an hour is a long time. And it kind of is compared to what we normally probably do. But it takes a little while to get used to the silence. It takes a little while to, to realize that this is a safe place, this is a good place, and God is here. It takes a little while for our minds to begin to just slow down a little bit and our hearts to be open. That's why some people want two-hour two hour blocks because it takes the first hour to sort of get acclimated and the second hour is the time you really engage God. And I'm convinced that, that coming together in these times of prayer, whether it's you by yourself or, or perhaps your spouse or a good friend or, or your family or your people in your dorm or whatever, it is an opportunity for us to step back from the noise and to pray and to worship and to hear. When you read, when you read the Old Testament and you see the comparison between Yahweh and the other gods, it is clear that only Yahweh is the one who speaks. He says, right before he says this about the Lord and his holy temple in silence, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2 are talking about the worthlessness of worshiping idols. And he said, you stand there in front of these blocks of wood and these pieces of stone, and you, you ask them to speak, but they can't speak. They're inanimate objects. And so what do you do? You, you, you try to do everything you can to get their attention. And you yell and you scream and you go through rituals and, and you're trying to do something to get them to respond to you. And, and idol worship is almost always connected to noise. But Yahweh says, I want you to be silent. I want you to know me. You don't have to try to get my attention. I'm trying to get your attention. What I love is that out of the silence, chapter 3 is almost like a completely different prophet. In chapter 3, you have this movement from in, a, in an upside-down world, can God be trusted, to in an upside-down world, I will trust him. I've seen it. 
I've been reminded of who God is. I have had an image of what it means to trust God in the now as I wait for the not yet. And so chapter 3 is this psalm of praise to God, declaring the greatness of God over all the earth. This God of power and might who has everything under his control and this God of mercy and grace who wants people to know him intimately. And when you get to the end of chapter 3, I think some of the most profound verses in the entire Old Testament, certainly among the prophets, but there's a lot of profound things. You get to the end of chapter 3 after he's had this battle, this struggle. God, do you see what's happening? God, are you going to do what I want you to do? Are you going to come through? Are you trustworthy? And now you get to the end of this and he says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, even if you don't do one single thing that I think you ought to do, even if it feels like life is not just upside down, but completely come off the rails and completely falling apart, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I will trust you. No matter what happens, I will trust you. And it isn't a sort of begrudging trust. It's not a God's got me against the ropes, there's nothing else I can do kind of trust. What he really says is if none of this stuff happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And I will live my life in the freedom of God like a deer prancing among the heights of the mountain. Because in the silence, I've been reminded of who God is. And that even in this upside down world, I've come to realize that I can find joy in trusting God no matter what. No matter what. And you and I are living in an upside down world. I mean, this world has gone crazy, it feels like, doesn't it? And it's not even just the wider world. It's the world in which we live. It's the world in our hearts in which we are continually wrestling and battling and struggling. And in the midst of all of that, God is with us. And we can trust him. He's good. Somewhere after my sophomore year of college, uh, I spent in Taiwan just a couple of years ago, it seems like, a little more. And um, it was a great experience. It's an awesome experience. There were six of us that went, and three of us were from Oregon, and so we met together at the Portland airport, and we flew to San Francisco to meet up the rest of the team and do the training and then to head out. I had only flown once or twice up to that point. I was a little bit nervous to begin with. 
And we get on the plane and we're flying and everything's going all right. And we start descending into San Francisco. And um, I don't know if the airport's like this or not now. But as you're descending into San Francisco and you look out the window, there is nothing but water. You know, 5,000 feet, I'm looking out the window, I see nothing but water. 4,000 feet, nothing but water. 2,000 feet, nothing but water. I'm beginning to feel my heart pound harder and harder, and I'm gripping the armrests. Fortunately, I didn't have a hold of anybody's arm or hand. I probably would have broken their fingers. And I'm getting more and more nervous with every passing moment. A thousand feet, nothing but water. Five hundred feet, nothing but water. We did not, I did not see land until I felt the wheels hit. I, I am convinced that when the front wheel hit the land, the back wheels were still over the water. I'm convinced that was the case. Nobody can tell me different. I am certain that was what was happening. I mean, I was as scared as I've been in a long time. We made the landing and it took a little, quite a while for my heart to stop pounding and for all of my senses to come back again. We had our thing, we went to Taiwan and on the way back, we fly into San Francisco again. And I can feel the anxiety building as we're getting close. Here's the thing, it was the exact same landing. The exact same landing. I was looking out the window the whole time, seeing nothing but water. But I wasn't quite as anxious as I was the first time. And I suspect that if I kept making that landing, and if I kept flying that, that, on that plane and continued time after time making that landing, I would get to the place where my anxiety level was much, much less, and I actually might begin to trust the pilot that he knew what he was doing. I'm convinced that the only way you can really learn to trust God is to trust God. You have to do it. And we learn to trust, we learn that God is faithful in the moments of silence, in the moments of prayer, in the moments of worship, in the times of being with Him. But eventually... That translates into trust. And here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that people who have been following Jesus for 60 and 70 years will say to you, trusting God is the greatest thing in the world? It's because they figured it out. Because they keep doing it. And every time they find that God is faithful. Every time you trust, you learn a little bit more about the goodness and the faithfulness and the character of God. Until you actually can come to the place where you you affirm with not just your mouth, but with your heart, I have found joy even in an upside-down world, in trusting God, no matter what. I do think it starts with silence. So we're going to take just a few moments of silence this morning as our prayer, time of prayer. I'm, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to let each of us pray.
to let God speak to you, say things to God. You might want to you might want to think about things in the world. You might want to take the back of your bulletin and those prayer concerns there. Let me just mention, some of you know Bob and Carol Brown. Bob had a stroke yesterday morning. The prognosis is very positive, so we're grateful for that. But I know they would appreciate our prayers as well. But to just spend a few moments, 60 seconds, maybe two minutes of silence, listening to God, speaking to God, encountering God. Father, thank you for being present with us. For speaking into our lives. For hearing our questions and our concerns and teaching us and loving us through them. Thank you for being who you are. Give us grace in this upside down world to find joy and trusting you, no matter what. We pray this through the grace of Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 